Good morning, good afternoon, que pasa, mi amigos, me llamo Wendell Wallace, standing amongst the tallest, here to talk about a podcast named Wendell's World in Sports, a show talking about what is happening on the basketball of courts, the football of fields, to reveal my thoughts and opinions and other worldly dimensions about what is happening in the everyday of college basketball, my Georgetown Hoyas, and the NBA, to talk about who's doing poorly, who's doing well in college football and the NFL for Michias. And my Mademoiselles. Born and raised from the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C. and Montgomery County, M.D., this skillful sports talker MC will take you on a sports field expedition that will leave you with no other decision than to make listening to Wendell's World in Sports the Podcast your main mission. Treasures a pleasure together as I discuss the important sports topics that are a must and crush and destroy it like the New England Patriots or Pittsburgh Steelers pass rush. TJ, watch out for the next episode and make sure you download, subscribe with great pride so people will highly rate along with giving great reviews to create clues for people to follow so this podcast can remain the king like LeBron through yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I get into the slap heard around the world, before I get into the NCAA basketball finals between Kansas and North Carolina, before I discuss the ending of Mike Krzyzewski's coaching reign at Duke University, before I get into what's happening in the NBA and the continuing downfall spiral of the Los Angeles Lakers or what does it mean for the legacy of LeBron James before I get into who's the real MVP of the league whether it be Giannis whether it be Nicola whether it be Joel Embiid before I get into any of that stuff and you could do me a favor I sure would appreciate it those who are listening to the YouTube version of this podcast if you could just go ahead and subscribe to my channel it would be fantastic if you could go ahead and like this video I would very much appreciate it and for those who are listening to the audio podcast of Wendell's World in Sports this episode. If you could do me a favor, go to the place where you listen to your favorite podcast. And then I want you to type in Wendell, W-E-N-D-E-L-L apostrophe S, Wendell's World in Sports. And I want you to download, subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, enjoy the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast that you can listen to. If you could go do that, that would be uh, very much appreciated. So thank you very much for that. Okay, let me go ahead and get things started. And um, we're going to start with a little something that kind of sounded like this. I love you. G.I. Jane 2. Can't wait to see it. All right. (laughs) 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 It's that was a that was a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh Uh-oh, Richard. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. 
Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. Holy shit. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. before. And look, I know this might be old news. And I know this might be past its expiration date in terms of relevancy. And I understand it might have been a boring news cycle. So people are going on about this and going on and going on. And we've heard from different communities. And we've heard from different celebrities. And we've heard from different unity leaders. And we've heard from people all over the place discussing this. So I only thought just for a few moments, I want to give my thoughts and opinions about the whole Will Smith, Chris Rock, the slap. Uh, keep your name's wife, keep keep, keep your, my uh, wife's name out your mouth, all that kind of stuff. I want to get into that and just explain, give my thoughts and opinions about that. Now, the aftermath of all of that is that Will Smith has resigned from the Academy after the Chris Rock slap. In a new statement on Friday, he said that uh, Smith apologized once again to Chris Rock and called his actions painful and inexcusable. He said that he will accept any other consequences that the Academy's Board of Governors d- d- deems fit, which could include stripping his Oscar. I don't, I don't think they're going to go that far, but what Will told, uh, what Will Smith told you, Yahoo Entertainment via his rep this past Wednesday was my action that the 94th Academy Awards presentation were shocking, painful, and inexcusable. The list of those who I have heard is long and includes Chris, his family, many, many of my Dear friends and loved ones, all of those in attendance and global audiences at home. And then also this past Thursday, he initiated a, uh, Will Smith initiated a uh, six-minute call with Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences President David Rubin and CEO David uh, Don Hudson to apologize for the incident. Uh, incident. So, all right, man, you know, who was right, who was wrong, who's the villain, who's the blame, who's the chump, who's the coward, who's the guy who stood up, who's the real man, who's the, all, all this kind of stuff, we're going to get into that. Look, man, Chris Rock, Will Smith, everyone involved in this nonsense should be held to uh, some type of accountability, blame, forgiveness, and all this kind of stuff. Look, man, the man went up, he was defending his wife, whether you thought that this was a gag, whether you thought this was fake, whether you thought that Will's a coward, whether you thought that... Um, Chris Rock went over the line with the joke that he made, all of these type of things. At the end of the day, look, man, you know, all I can say is some women can make men do some crazy things, man. Should I say hashtag entanglement? Look, I don't know if the Smiths hadn't hung around the Smiths, haven't interviewed the Smiths, haven't been in any intimate moments or personal moments with the Smiths. My thoughts and opinions about who they are as human beings is basically strict on what I see and what I read and what I believe or what I care about and all this type of thing. So, look, man, I'm not trying to give you something where it's like, yeah, there's some absolute because I know when it comes to Jada and Will Smith, I know exactly what's going on. I know about their marriage. I've known or I guess it's widely known about their entanglements and transgressions and how they live their lives and all that type of stuff. Look, man, there's a war going on in Ukraine, so it's not like I'm going to be sitting there worrying about what's happening to uh, Will and Jada uh, Smith, two people who are worth, what, over $100 million easy. So, look, man, with, you know, with all the stuff that we have right and you know, all the stuff that we have going on, the man should have, I don't know, I, don't, I shouldn't say even should have, because to each his own. Me, personally, if someone made fun, if I was in a serious relationship with somebody and I really cared about that woman and a comedian made a joke who I thought was my friend, someone who I knew, and he made a joke like that, and if I didn't like it, if I felt offended, if I felt that my wife felt offended uh the camera shot to me i maybe give a little awkward little laugh or half laugh or a little bit of a hmm, 
all right. And then afterwards, at the commercial break or something, I would have, you know, taken Chris Rock aside and said, hey, man, not funny, not cool. Uh, didn't appreciate it, didn't like it. So uh, just wanted to let you know, you know, just in, just in case that you want to keep going on with this stuff, I just want to let you know, not funny, very offended, and I'm, and I'm hurt by it. So that would have been my thing. And I would have done that in private. I would, have, I would not have gone up. I don't have the cojones to really go up on stage like Will Smith did in front of all those people and slap the shit out of Chris Rock and then walk away. I mean, if I'm going to go up, I'm going to slap somebody. I'm going to do more to slap them because my thought would be if I'm going to slap this guy, just in case there's some retaliation, I better give him the one-two and not with a slap, but with my fists. If I'm going to go up there and start with some attack, whether it be a slap, whether it be a punch, whether it be a kick, whether it be something, I'm going to go up there and anticipate that the guy who I'm slapping, punching, kicking, biting, kneeing, whatever, is going to retaliate some type of way. And give it up for Chris Rock, the man who took the punch and kept on going. That probably, if I'm, if I would have done that, if I would have done that and I would have hit the guy, whether it be a slap, whether it be a punch, and I turn around and walk away, and he's up there laughing, and he still has to, you know, he still has the poise to tell a joke. In a small way, that kind of emasculates me because it's like, man, I gave this guy a good right cross, and this is what I get, and this is all that it happened. This guy's still up there telling jokes. This guy's still up there with a smile on his face. This guy's still going up there like nothing happened. Man, this guy still has his wits about him to tell another joke, and in the process where. He's saying that Will Smith, or in this case, wow, Wendell Wallace just smacked the shit out of me. Ha, 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 ha. And I'm th- sitting up there pissed. I'm going to be even more emasculated. I'm going to be even more embarrassed. I'm going to be even more angrier. I'm not going to go back up there and hit him again. <laughs> but it's like, bam. So it, it, I, I don't know, man. It, it's, as a black man, I hated to see two black men acting that way. And look, I mean, Chris Rock told a joke, and Chris Rock's a comedian, and the reports were that Chris Rock didn't know that Jada Smith had the disease that she had in which her hair falls out, so he wasn't aware of that. I mean, if you're a comedian, hey, man, you go for gold in a situation like this. So it was Academy Awards. It wasn't a roast. So maybe there are some things where you can uh, kind of keep your hands off in terms of subject matter. But any great comedian or any comedian will tell you they live to be in a world where things are awkward where things are uncomfortable. And for many comedians telling jokes, yeah, they want to get a laugh, but they also want that feeling of awkwardness, that feeling of uneasiness, that feeling of not being comfortable. So for Chris Rock, who's one of the greatest comedians of his generation, who's been making people feel uncomfortable and making people think with some of the thoughts and feelings and jokes that he's been putting together, I mean, something like this, I mean, to make fun of the woman's... uh, uh, disease or what she's going through right now wasn't something to, uh, you know, have people think deeply into what their lives are supposed to be and all those type of things. But it was just a situation where it was like, man, you know, like I mentioned before, Will Smith, hey man, I mean, how do we know? I mean, you know, like I mentioned before, women drive men crazy, just like men drive women crazy. And in the relationship where you have both people driving each other crazy, who knows what's going to be happening, man? Maybe Will who, if you saw the video, was up there laughing and smiling. And then the next thing we knew, he's walking on stage and giving a right-hand cross to uh, Rock. Maybe it was a situation where he thought it was funny, looked over, he saw how hurt his wife was. And maybe it wasn't a situation where, you know, chivalry, I'm going to go up and defend my Nubian princess. Maybe it was a situation where he was like, oh, man, I don't want to hear this nonsense. I don't want to hear her blabber. I don't want to hear her complain. I don't want to hear her whine and moan about why you didn't do this and 
making fun of my disease and you're up there laughing at the guy and encouraging the guy. So I guess that means you really don't care about me and you really don't love me and I'm hurt and you hurt me more than the joke itself. And you have to hear the woman go on and on and on and on. So happy wife, happy life. Maybe it was a situation where, oh shit, she caught me laughing. If I don't do something now, I'm going to have to hear this woman blabber on and on and on about it for a while. So let me go up here and smack the shit out of this guy, and maybe that'll put me back in the good graces. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. All I know is, is that we've, and I'm just not talking about men, women too. We've all been in relationships where you have a female or you have a male, you have a partner that just drives you nuts. It makes you do things that you normally wouldn't do. So when you're speaking about the things that Jada Pinkett Smith has put her husband through, publicly coming out with it and doing all that type of stuff. Hey, man, you know, you, you screw with another person's mind who you've been in a relationship with, you're married with, you have kids with, and I'm not married, and I don't have kids, and I've never really been in a serious relationship. So, you know, strike one, strike two, strike three on me trying to uh, Dr. Phil or, you know, kind of give counseling advice to these folks. But uh, I do know that uh, I've been with women who've driven me absolutely bonkers and absolutely nuts and gotten me to do things and say things and, actions that normally in my right frame of mind I wouldn't have done so when you're dealing with the entanglement woman and you're making videos and you're going through nonsense like this you've been on a hell of a journey with me mm -hmm. yeah you know there's people's feelings involved right right you know mm -hmm. it's healing that needs to happen mm -hmm. absolutely so what happened, Jada? Okay, so mm -hmm. to, I think it was about four and a half, four years ago, mm -hmm. um, started a friendship with August. Mm -hmm. And we actually became really, really good friends. Mm -hmm. And it all started with him just needing some help. Mm -hmm. You know, me wanting to help his health, his mental state. And we found all those different resources, mm -hmm. you know, to help pull him through. Mm -hmm. And from there, you know, you and I were going through a very difficult time. Yeah. That particular point in time, it was indefinite. Yeah. I really felt like we could be over. You yeah. Know? No, and we were over. And then what did you do, Jada? Well, you know, I think from there, you know, as time went on, I got into a different kind of entanglement. I think um, you need to say clearly what happened. And I got into an entanglement with August. That's what I said. An entanglement? Yes. <laughs> yes. A relationship. Yes. It was a relationship. Absolutely. We decided that we were going to separate for a period of time and you go figure out how to make yourself happy. I was in a lot of pain and I was very broken. Now, in the process of that relationship, I definitely realized that you can't find happiness outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And luckily enough, you and I were also going through a process of healing in a much different manner. Mm -hmm. I would During that time, launched into an interaction mm -hmm. with August. What do you feel like um, you were looking for? I just wanted to feel good. Mm -hmm. It had been so long mm -hmm. since I felt Good. Husband, I'm, now I got to be with you at the press conference <laughs> while you like tell the world uh, about your transgressions. <laughs>
Like, I love, I love my baby. I'm going to stand by my baby no matter what. No, I definitely, <laughs> I definitely understand mm-hmm. um, why it would look that way or feel that way. But I actually don't look at it as a transgression at all. Through that particular journey, I learned so much mm-hmm. about myself and was able to really confront a lot of emotional immaturity, mm-hmm. emotional insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I was really able to do some really deep healing. Mm-hmm. It was really a joy to just help heal somebody. Yeah. Because I wasn't sure I was ever going to speak to you again. I know, I know. Yeah, like... The fact that I'm speaking to you again is a, <laughs> is a miracle. Uh, I don't want to go through this no more. Yeah, no, I don't yeah, either. Yeah. I'm going to get you back first, and then... You're going to get me back. I think you've gotten me back. <laughs> I think you <laughs> I think we're good on that, okay? <laughs> okay? I wish, you know, I wish that wasn't the case. <laughs> I do. I Absolutely. wish yeah, that sure. wasn't the hey, case. I sure wish it could be all magic and miracles. Yeah. Hey, that might, that's probably true. That's you know, true. but, um, and I don't think it's about getting anybody back. No, for me it is. Okay. Um, I'll give you that petty <laughs> that's what you want. <laughs> oy, oy, oy. We were in an entanglement. Bitch, you were fucking the guy. He's an entanglement. Entanglement, my ass. You were fucking that motherfucker. That's the fuck what you were doing. You're going to be sitting up here, putting me on camera, putting me on blast like that. The camera's staring straight at me, and I'm supposed to be sitting up there. Man, I want to kill this bitch. I don't really want to do that, but, you know, literally, it's like, man, what, 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 bitch, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to put our business out on the street like this? Well, it's already been out on the street. Well, don't worry about the streets. You're going to confirm some of that shit that's going down? Who gives a fuck? Let the streets talk. I don't care. All I know is that you were messing around while we were married. You're a mother of my children. You were messing around with some guy who's old enough to be, I don't know, her, her son's oldest. I don't know. I, I, or, you know, her oldest son. You're messing around with someone his age. Now, I don't know what kind of dirty Will Smith was doing in his relationships in terms of who he was cheating on. And so, hey, man, you know, one bad term deserves, deserves another. I don't know. I don't know. But women can make men do some crazy things, just like men can make women do some crazy, crazy things, man. People in love, whether they think it's love, if they feel it's love, that's what their definition of love, can do some things that can make people go nuts. Because let me tell you something right now. When Halle Berry comes walking up that door and says, Wendell, will you be mine forever? All you have to do is rob a bank. I'm going to say, give me the gun and give me the ski mask. So it's like, hey, man, you know, I haven't been in that situation where it's like you have, you're as deep into it as the Smiths are with the marriage and everything that they went through, you know, bad, bad marriage for life, you know what I'm talking about? So I don't know. But it was kind of embarrassing getting back to the fact that you see two black men, you know, acting like that at the Oscars in terms of the slap, in terms of what happened. And kudos to Tyler Perry, kudos to Denzel Washington for, uh, you know, being the cooler heads prevailing and give it up for Chris Rock. I don't know if he was just dumbfounded. I don't know if he was just shocked. I don't know if he was Scared? I don't know what it was for him not to uh, retaliate, because a lot of brothers would have definitely retaliated with that one. So, you know, give it up for uh, everybody involved in terms who was helping to, uh, you know, subside and try to uh, lessen the impact, the negative impact that it could have had when you'd see uh, two brothers out there acting like that. So that's my thoughts and opinions about the slap heard around the world. Amen. It's over. It's done with. People make mistakes. He made a mistake. He didn't kill the guy. 
other things to worry about in this world. Nice little fodder, but I just wanted to give you my thoughts and opinions about that. Now, we can go ahead and start talking about UNC, University of North Carolina, ending the career, basketball head coaching career of Mike Krzyzewski after 42 years, after 42 seasons at Duke, in the run at the number eight seed that UNC had made to the final Final game of the NCAA tournament, not a tournament to determine who is a champion overall, not to determine who the best team in college basketball is, but the winner of this tournament, which just happens to be the NCAA basketball championship. Two distinct things when you're speaking about NCAA tournament deciding who the best team in the country is and truly who is the best team in the country is regardless of a one-game single elimination tournament like this, which really doesn't give you a good, um, really doesn't give you a good gauge to find out who the best team in college basketball is. So I'm going to be speaking about that. I'm going to be getting into that, and I'm going to be doing this right after this. <laughs> I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, taking a look at what's happening now, what's going on in the world of sports out here in this country, the great states, uh, great America, whatever you want to call it. All right. So uh, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad you could be with us. Hey, so um, we've got the uh, final set for the NCAA basketball tournament, Kansas and North Carolina. I know people want to sit there and we're going to speak mostly about what's going on with the um, game between Duke and Kansas to what does it mean and what does it mean for Duke? What does it mean for North Carolina? What does it mean for Hubert Davis? What does it mean for the storyline of Cinderella and all those type of things? But I don't think that we should uh, sleep on the performance that the University of Kansas gave us in their triumphant victory over Villanova, a weakened Villanova who was playing without one of their starters, the fact that they beat them pretty convincingly and convincingly. And while, you know, you're speaking about being a fan of North Carolina, if you're a fan of the Tar Heels of North Carolina and you're speaking about, man, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be fantastic for the movie to end with Hubert Davis and UNC after eliminating the possibility of Duke and Mike Krzyzewski going off into a fairy book story tale ending, the fact that they can go ahead and win the championship. And it would almost be reminiscent of Kevin Alley, of what he did with UConn when he uh, took over from a legend and Jim Calhoun and very quickly led his team, led UConn, a team at that time that was considered one of the elites in college basketball, mainly built up by the hard work and expertise and the Hall of Fame resume and the talent of Jim Calhoun and his ability to build a program into nothing 
turn it into a national power, turning it into a national elite, turning it over to one of his players in Kevin Ali. Then Kevin Ali taking the reins and, as I mentioned before, winning the NCAA championship before getting caught cheating and some other things, vanquished him from the coaching ranks of college basketball. As for now, that's kind of like a similar situation in terms of Hubert Davis, a guy who played for a legend in Dean Smith, went to the pros for a little bit, came back. Uh, assistant coach then took over the reins from a Hall of Famer in Roy Williams in his first time as the head coach with no coaching experience, took a team, took his all of a martyr to the NCAA championship victory. It would be it would be a fantastic story to tell. Absolutely fantastic. But I think that um, we need to forget, we cannot forget that Kansas is doggone good and they're playing some really, really good. Really good basketball. So on Saturday night, North Carolina beats Duke 81 77 in the final four. This time, here at the round, out to love. History might have taken it over Griffin. That's a shot. That's a three. And that's big right there. He's able to get anything in his area. Oh my goodness. And you know, he got going with his right. He's given number eight seed. The Tar Heels, a four-point lead, and then basically secure the victory. Trevor Keels made a free throw with 10.4 seconds left to make it 79-77 before Love drained a pair of free throws to solidify the victory. And the storyline then says, wow, God really does hate Duke. Main storylines from the tournament of the tournament now switches from Shkoshyshevsky, final tournament, unbelievable, greatest coach of all time, wow, Fitting it would be that he could leave the stage, exit with a championship, reminiscing of those who remember watching Al McGuire in tears as Marquette was about to win its championship and Al McGuire retiring at the end of the season and the emotion that overcame him. And also with John Wooden, one of the greatest coaches of all time, regardless of sport, just like Krzyzewski, winning his last game as coach of UCLA, winning the championship. The... Storyline then switches from that in terms of what would this championship mean for Coach K in terms of the legacy which is already set. How much greater would another championship mean? How much greater would even making the Final Four for the 13th time mean if he didn't win a championship? Remember all of those things surrounding Coach K his last time around. Now, I think the main storyline switches to North Carolina and Hubert Davis, as I mentioned before, winning the championship, becoming the fifth coach. If you're thinking about Hubert Davis, the fifth coach to advance to the national championship game in the first season, and he also becomes the first head coach, speaking of Davis, becomes the first head coach to reach the Final Four in this first season since Bill Guthridge, who also coached North Carolina, did it in 1998, taking over from the legend Dean Smith. And, and an also equally important note, Hubert Davis is trying to become the fifth black head coach to win the tournament championship. Before him, there were John Thompson, who was given the first real opportunity to do so, followed by Nolan Richardson, then Tubby Smith, and now and Kevin Ollie, and now Hubert Davis has that uh, opportunity. I, I, I'm always going back to this, man. I'm always going to go back to this. I'm always going to ask you. I'm always going to bring it up, especially in this tournament, where, once again, I don't think this tournament really defines who the best team in college basketball is. I understand why they have the tournament. I understand why people are excited about the tournament. And for the universities and for the NCAA, the, the amount of money that it generates and the interest, I understand why they have it. 
I'm not saying this is be a monopoly where they pay, play the best two out of three or four out of seven or no, some nonsense like that. I just like to put it in proper perspective when we're speaking about what this equates to in terms of winning this championship. I still think that uh, if we had a true playoff, if we had a true um, playoff to, to determine who the best team in college basketball is, I still think that you could put in a Duke, you can put in a Gonzaga, you can put in a Kentucky, you can put in one of those type of teams. You can put in a Kansas, the way that they're playing. But um, in a situation like this, the excitement and the interest and the attention that it brings to college basketball, probably at the only time when you're speaking about college basketball, unless you live in Lexington, Kentucky, unless you live in Bloomington, Indiana, unless you live in Durham, North Carolina, unless you live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, unless you live in one of those places who are a hotbed, Lawrence, Kansas, which is a hotbed for college basketball, unless you live in those areas and those communities, college basketball only shines its brightest amongst the multitudes of sports fans when March Madness comes around. So to dilute that or change that in any way, I'm going to take away the storyline of quote-unquote Cinderella, even though I don't think there's any Cinderella's for real in the tournament, I don't think that would be a wise decision so we can have a clearer picture on who the best team in college basketball is for a particular season. So when you're speaking about this run for North Carolina, and I mentioned before about St. Peter's, the fact that they weren't a, they weren't a Cinderella, even though as a 15 seed, first team, that was seeded 15, who made the NCAA tournament elite eight before losing to North Carolina. The fact that they did not win the tournament makes them ineligible to be considered a, a Cinderella in my book. So when you speak about North Carolina, a team that was struggling in February, a team that was on the outside looking in as early as February, mid-February, late February, a team that going into the tournament really didn't have that high of an expectation. Seeded number eight. Not too many seeds that high ever make it this far in the NCAA tournament. Despite the fact that this was North Carolina, one of the long-established elite basketball programs for an extended period of time. The fact that anybody could have predicted them to be in the final game against Kansas, another team that is a historical blue blood, would have been fooling themselves and fooling you, trying to dupe you and me. So when you think about this run for North Carolina, when you think about what has happened for North Carolina from the time that they were middling in mid-February to where they are now, what would you call this run? What would you call, if you just want to break it down a little bit, what would you characterize? How would you define this run in the tournament by North Carolina? Improbable? Implausible? Inspiring? You can use all those monikers. You could use all those adjectives. One thing I'm not going to go, though, I'm not going here. Even, even if they win the championship, and we speak about teams who have won the championship before, we speak about Cinderella teams who have truly won the championship before, who can truly call themselves, themselves Cinderella, when you speak of Villanova in 1985, when you speak about North Carolina State in 1983, my definition, not Cinderella's, but when you hear the promos, then you hear the talking heads, they always label those squads as Cinderella's. Even if North Carolina wins the championship, they should not be considered Cinderella. Yes, the Tar Heel finished the regular season 23-8 and overall, 5-15 and in ACC play, which was down a bit this season. Now they've improved to 6-1 in the postseason since the tournament started and the conference tournament started. But if you look back on it, man, February 18th, 
after losing to Pittsburgh at home 76-67, dropping their record to 18-8 overall, 10-5, and, and at what at that time was a slightly above mediocre conference. UNC again was considered on the bubble, and their NCAA tournament hopes were tenuous at best. This was a season for North Carolina where it didn't show that type of promise to where they would be ending up right now. Started the season 3-2 and two after losing two straight games to number 6 Purdue and number 17 Tennessee, both on the road. Won five games in a row, including beating Michigan 72-51 before getting blown out by Kentucky 98-69. Then won four of their next five conference games before losing two straight to Miami and Wake Forest. So coming into the first meeting with Duke February 5th at home, they were crushed, 87-67, at home, to Duke, 87-67. The fall, the 16-7 overall, 8-4 and four in league play, and everybody was talking about, man, I don't know, man. We could have gotten somebody else. I mean, you know, you have a story program. You have a story program like North Carolina. You're coming off uh, the retirement of one of the uh, best coaches of his generation, Roy Williams, and you go with a guy who – I mean, basically, he doesn't have any coaching experience. I mean, the situation where, you know, this guy didn't work himself up the ladder. Yeah, he went straight from the pros to the uh, college basketball talking booth at ESPN and then went to the assistant coaching route at North Carolina. But this guy wasn't the associate head coach. This guy didn't have a ton of experience, even as an assistant coach. This guy didn't start somewhere else, gain a little bit of experience, and then go to the bench at North Carolina and work his way up. This wasn't a situation where he didn't have any prior uh, coaching experience anywhere. Not the JV squad, not the intramural squad, nothing. I don't even know if he has kids, if he would have coached their Little League squad. So he comes in here and takes the program like North Carolina, his historic high-quality, high-expectation job like North Carolina who, you know, when the job becomes open and it doesn't become open that many times, you can consider it one of the, what, six, seven top jobs in college basketball in the sport, and you're going to give that job to somebody with no coaching experience? There was scuttlebutt. There was talk about that, that, hey, man, maybe, maybe North Carolina made a mistake. Maybe, once again, keeping it in the family, when keeping it in the family goes wrong. Example, North Carolina hiring Hubert Davis. Main example, Georgetown hiring Patrick Ewing. Not yet. Get to them in a second. But uh, after that loss to Duke, 87-67 on February 5th, falling the record was 16-7 overall, 8-4 league play. Then after that game, they've lost, they lost to uh, Pittsburgh, and then, uh, and then that's where they took off. After losing to Virginia Tech in the NCAA, uh, ACC tournament, conference tournament, they haven't lost uh, since. So, yeah, where it makes the story, how we can start the story, how we can define the story, how we can talk about the story, how we can write the story, how we can write the script and give it to somebody who can actually produce it and believe in it. Yeah, in this tournament, the tournament run that they made, surprising, remarkable, exciting, interesting, but it did nothing. It has nothing to do with Cinderella. That they beat Duke. They beat Duke. They ended the regular season for Mike Krzyzewski at home with all the hoopla with a loss. How can you say the story isn't about Cinderella? Wendell, you just told me about how much grief and how much pressure and how much second-guessing was going on with Hubert Davis being hired at the coach for North Carolina after they lost 
to Pittsburgh after they got blown at at home by Duke. How in the world can you not say this is Cinderella? A team that came in as the number eight seed, a team that was expected not to do, not to go anywhere in the tournament. How in the world can you sit there and say this is not a Cinderella? Wendell, what the flip are you talking about? Not only did they beat Duke, their hated nemesis, their arch rival, a team that only eight miles apart. Fan bases can't stand each other. One of the greatest rivalries, not just in college basketball, but in college sports, period. And not only do they beat a legend, a living legend, not only do they ruin his farewell game at home in the regular season, then with the opportunity for Krzyzewski to add another championship to his already glorious resume, they send them home. They send them home. And that's not Cinderella, first of all, again. They have to beat Kansas. If they beat Kansas, then Wendell, are you going to say that they're Cinderella? No. 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 No, 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 no. Yeah, give me all of your examples of Cinderella. Number 8 seed, Villanova. 1985, the lowest seed to win a championship at Villanova. If UNC wins this championship, Wendell, they'll be, the, they'll be tied with Villanova at the lowest seed to ever win a championship. How could you not say that they're Cinderella? I mean, Villanova in 85, they beat number nine Dayton. They beat number one Michigan. They beat number five Maryland. And then they beat uh, they beat UNC. They make it to the uh, Final Four where they beat Memphis State and my man Keith Lee and then beat, you know, whatever. Not going to go there. But how can you not say that that's not Cinderella? The number 11 CU, LSU under Dale Brown came into the tournament in 1986 with a record of 22 and 11. Came in at the 11th seed, Wendell. They beat number six, Purdue, in the opening round. Then they beat number three, Memphis. Then number two, Georgia Tech. And then number one, Kentucky. They didn't have any gimmies. They didn't have anything that was paved by unbelievable outcomes and this higher seed loss and this other higher seed loss. So to make it to the final four, these quote-unquote Cinderella's, these quote-unquote miracle teams were playing seeds that were lower than them, that were the... Uh, that, that that beat other higher squads, so they didn't have to play a number one seed. They didn't have to play a number four seed. They didn't have to play a number three seed. No, no, no. You, LSU with number 11, they beat, again, the number three Memphis Tigers. They beat the number two Georgia Tech uh, Yellow Jackets with Bobby Kremens at the coach. They beat number one Kentucky before falling in the final four to Louisville, who then beat Duke in the national championship, which raised more criticism toward Mike Krzyzewski at the time because it was like, man, how in the world can you not win with Johnny Dawkins and Tommy Amaker and Jay Billis and and, uh, and Mark Allery of those guys? So you have the number eight seed Butler Bulldogs, number 11. They defeated number nine Old Dominion and then the number one seed Pittsburgh uh, uh, Panthers and then number four Wisconsin and then number two uh, Florida Gators in the southeast region. So how in the world can you say that if the – University of North Carolina, if they win this championship, how can you not describe them as a Cinderella squad? I'm sorry, man. North Carolina can never, ever, ever, ever be Cinderella. Never. Blue Bloods can never be Cinderella. You can't have a Cinderella Blue Blood. I'm sorry. When you're speaking about the tradition, when you're speaking about the history, when you're speaking about the great level of play, when you're speaking about the expectations of excellence, when you're speaking about the basketball budget, when you're speaking about the recruiting fertile grounds that these folks can recruit from, when you're speaking about the the financial background that is put or the financial um, the financial commitment 
that's made to these coaches and to the basketball facilities, you can't, I don't care. That doesn't equate Cinderella. And I'm sorry, any team, if you take a look at uh, the four of uh, North Carolina's starting five that's going into this championship game against Kansas, I'm sorry, Armando Bancock, R.J. Davis, who was, recorded, who was being heavily recruited by Georgetown, he's son of a, Leaky Black and Caleb Love, I'm sorry, Bancock, Davis, Black, and Love, you can't have a starting four of five like that and consider yourself a Cinderella. Not when Caleb Love was a top 15 five-star recruit. Not when R.J. Davis was a top 50 four-star recruit. Not when Armando Bodcock was a five-star top 30 recruit. You can't have a starting lineup where you have three to four five-star, four-star recruits on your team and be considered a Cinderella. If anything, you can consider yourself underachieving that you were an eighth seed to begin with. So, no, don't give me this stuff about, man, I'll tell you, this is a, you know, it's, it's a great story. It's a fantastic story. It's a story that you need to cheer for. But Cinderella? No. Cinderella? No. Cinderella can never be a, I'm sorry, North Carolina can never be a Cinderella. Duke can never be a Cinderella. Kentucky, even with, even the first year that Rick Pitino came in and he was bringing in all those guys that no one heard of to uh, pair with Jamal Mashburn, even that team that got beat in the final eight at the Spectrum in Philadelphia by Christian Leitner, one of the greatest clutch shots in NCAA basketball tournament history, even that team could not be considered a Cinderella. It was Kentucky, man. It's Kentucky. UCLA can't be considered a Cinderella, even what they did last season, coming in at the 11th seed and making it to the uh, uh, Final Four and losing on a miracle shot by Jalen Shrugs. Can't be considered a Cinderella. UCLA can never be considered a Cinderella. Not that program. What did the name of John Wooden and Marcus Johnson are we talking about? If we're going to be naming uh, an elite basketball program like that, a Cinderella on any level, at any stage. Villanova, the way they've been, they could never be a Cinderella. Guess what? Gonzaga, who started this whole mess about Cinderella, defining Cinderella, who's a Cinderella, the spotlight of Cinderella going on a team, this little small Jesuit Christian school or this Catholic Jesuit Christian school, private institution up there in Spokane, Washington, who plays in the WCC, who has to go toe-to-toe every year with Pepperdine and St. Mary's and Loyola Marymount and San Francisco and those type of squads. Yes, they were at one time considered a Cinderella. Not anymore, bad boys. Not anymore. And since they never won a championship, they are not considered a Cinderella, and they never will be now because of where they are in terms of a basketball program. So, no, don't give me this again. Great story, fantastic story, wonderful story. Way to go, North Carolina. And I'm rooting for um, Hubert Davis. I love Bill Self, but uh, to have Hubert Davis from Fairfax, Virginia, make it in terms of a fifth at the fifth black coach to win an NCAA tournament championship, it would be something special, man. It would be something very special. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, with the spotlight, with the storyline being placed on Hubert Davis and North Carolina, what does it mean now for what does it mean now for Mike Krzyzewski? What is the legacy now? Where can we go with this? What can what can we speak about this? What what hasn't been said? 
Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah, he's unbelievable. Yeah, he's all of this this in a bag of chips. Wish Duke could have gone a little bit better from the three-point line when you shoot only 23% because you go five for 22. Not going to win you any basketball game and missing free throws. Not just what Mark Williams missing his two free throws, but for the game going 12 for 20, shooting 6%, that's not going to win you any games. So, you know, that kind of spoiled what happened with uh, Coach K moving forward. But, I mean, you know, come on, man. A man is 75 years old, 42 years coaching at Duke, having the time of his life, one of the greatest coaches of all time. He's the Don Shula, Greg Popovich, Scotty Bowman of his sport. He won two FIBA World Championships, three Olympic gold medals, five NCAA championships, 13 NCAA Final Four, has over 1,100 wins, the most of any coach. And I mentioned before about Don Shula. I mentioned before about uh, Greg Popovich. There's, there's going to be nobody. There's going to be nobody who's ever going to reach the accomplishments that Myshechevsky has reached. There's like there's going to be no NBA coach that's going to stick around over 20-plus years to uh, catch Greg Popovich coaching most wins in a uh, most wins in the career just like there's going to be no the way especially the NHL the way they fire coaches no one's going to be around long enough to catch Scotty Bowman and the amount of victories that he has just like there's nobody in the you know grind them out chew them out spit them out uh, world that is college that is uh, NFL football coaching that no one's going to stick around the amount of time that Don Shula did with the success that he had, even the ups and downs of his over 20-plus year career to amount the amount of wins that Don Shula had. So, man, you know, Don Shula's record is almost like the amount of losses for Cy Young in terms of ain't, there ain't no pitcher going forward ever that's ever going to reach 511 wins or 313 losses. Sorry, that's not going to happen. That's just stuff that we don't even think about. So when you think about the accomplishments of Coach Krzyzewski, Ben, I hope that we can kind of, I mean, the man's 75 years old. He looks in great shape. He looks fantastic. So I don't know. He might live another 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. I don't know. Mike Krzyzewski at 125 years old. That would be interesting. But I think that we should acknowledge, and I think that we should uh, be cognizant of how absolutely great this man was as a coach and the accomplishments that he did. Yeah, you can speak about, you know, once he started getting rolling, once he recruited Jelly Dawkins from Mackin High School in uh, Washington, D.C., from the WCAC back in the day, which basically saved his career because the first part or the small part at the beginning of his career, there was rumblings that uh, maybe this guy Krasuski wasn't the right guy for the job, especially when Virginia, who was ranked number one at the time with Ralph Sampson, one of the greatest college basketball players of all time, I think beat them like 101 to 69, or they did something terrible. They, 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 they beat them something awful. And uh, Duke at that time was mediocre. And, you know, Coach K at that time was not Coach K. He was just a guy who had no coaching experience, came over from the Army, was uh, highly recommended by Bobby Knight. But this was a situation where, hey, man, if it wasn't 1983, 82, 84, if we're speaking about Mike Krzyzewski being given the job at Duke University and say, 2014, 2016, 2018, by 2022 right now, he might not even have a job. That's how poorly that Coach Krzyzewski's career started. That even back in the early to mid-80s that people were calling for his job. As I mentioned before, he went out and, as I mentioned before, Johnny Dawkins saved his career. Johnny Dawkins saved Duke basketball. Johnny Dawkins, in that sense, 
save college basketball. Because if he didn't get Johnny Dawkins, yeah, you could speak about Jay Billis and you could speak about Mark Allery, who was part of that the recruiting class. And then the next year, they went out and got themselves their point guard, Tommy Amaker from W.T. Woodson. And that was started that role that didn't end for another, I don't know, 30-something years in terms of excellence. But if it wasn't for Johnny Dawkins, if it wasn't for getting Johnny Dawkins, Coach Krzyzewski wouldn't have been around and been able to accomplish the things that he accomplished. So it's sometimes not about all X's and O's. It's more about the Jimmys and the Joes. And I, and I really also think if you take a look at the retirement, the last game by uh, Coach Krzyzewski, you're, you're taking a look at the end of an era in terms of a generation of basketball coaches. Over the last couple of years, you had Roy Williams retiring, and, and now you know you have Mike Krzyzewski retiring. And you know the, the, the only guy left from that, from that generation still going is Jim Beheim, who's, I gosh, is he, is he 80? Is he reaching 80? If he's not 80, he's got to be 78 or 79, somewhere around there. But, hey, man, you know, you, you get to a point, and I, I, I don't think when these coaches decide to hang it up or these coaches – from that era, the Shashevsky Roy Williams era. I mean, him and John, uh, John Calipari and um, Roy Williams. Excuse me, um, John Calipari and Jim Beheim are the only two left. But when you think about just the toll now in college basketball, and now with the NIL and how easy it is to transfer, and now you have um, a, a pro basketball leagues where you know you have some of these guys now who are not even going to college and the ones who are really good you can only go for one year and they can they only go for one year and you know back in the day man when Shashevsky and Williams and these guys were getting into college coaching they, they weren't doing it to become brands they weren't doing it to become millionaires they weren't doing it to become famous I think now because of the escalation of the attention brought to college basketball, in essence, because of great legendary coaches like Coach K, that now you can become a brand. Now you can become a celebrity as a basketball coach. You can become a multi-multi-millionaire. You can become an industry. And the power that you have over a community, over a region, over a city, over a college town, over a state, can be enormous. So now you see coaches getting into this job Mainly because, hey, you know what? I'm going to be a millionaire, and I have the opportunity through sneaker deals and everything like that to really become um, something special and something important. I think when Coach K and those guys got into the game back in the early 80s, I mean, there was, I mean, at that time, could you name me like a really famous, famous coach at that time? I mean, you take a look at the coaches that I grew up in love. I mean, Lefty Drizel and, and, and John Thompson, they were, they were big names. They were big names within the community, but globally, nationally, were they at the stature that these coaches are today? Now, because of the internet and social media and cable television and other things, they didn't have those avenues to go down to, to uh, advertise, to uh, put the spotlight on those guys. But Coach Thompson and Coach Beheim and Coach Karnaseka and Coach Drizel and Bobby Knight, these guys didn't get into the sport because they wanted to become millionaires and they wanted to become famous. So I think slowly but surely, you see these old-time coaches like Krzyzewski and those guys get out of the business because it's not about really, it's not about teaching as much as it was before. It's not about building strong bonds of communication or really getting a guy to uh, 
coming to your school as an 18-year-old and then leaving with a degree and becoming a better human being and becoming a better man and you being their father figure, you being their parent while they're in school and guiding them on becoming a man from coming in as a boy, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. And that stuff is not really even kosher anymore. I've, I've said that many times, as much as I love John Thompson, as much as I think John Thompson is the bee's knees, John Thompson's act in terms of the basketball, which is half, you know, which is empty, it doesn't have any air in it because the message that he's trying to give you is once basketball is over, how are you going to uh, deal with your life and don't let six ounces of air control your life and those type of things. I mean, that back in the day when he first got into coaching John Thompson at Georgetown and Georgetown made their name and became America's program and globally known and John Thompson became a big deal. I mean, yeah, that message resonated. Now it's almost a matter of, man, I don't give a damn about this empty this deflated basketball, man, how quickly can you get me to the pros? I don't care about getting a degree. How quickly can you get me to the pros? Man, I ain't interested in forming some long-time father-type figure type of bond with you. How quickly can you get me into the pros? I only want to stay here six months. I mean, when you go to Kentucky, when you go to Duke, when you go to Kansas, when you're a five-star recruit, when you're a top-ten recruit in your class, you're not interested in getting a degree in four years and playing in the NCAA tournament for four years or bonding with your teammates and, uh, and, and, and gaining lifelong friends in college and meeting your wife in college and meeting longtime people that you'll know for the rest of your life in college, your sophomore, your junior, and your senior year. You're not interested in any of that. You're interested in how quickly can I get to the pros. John Calipari promised me that I only need to be on campus for six months or for one semester, and then I can be a number one draft pick or I can be a lottery pick, and I can change my financial stature, and I can change my financial ways for me, my grandma, my parents, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my relatives. I can do all of that. By the time I hit 19 years old, where do I sign up? I ain't interested in John Calipari becoming my father figure my junior and senior year in college. I don't even like high school. I, I, want, I want to get to the NBA as quickly as possible. What are you going to do for me? Back in 82, that wasn't a deal. Back when Mike Krzyzewski was getting into coaching, or the reason why he was getting into coaching, it had nothing to do with one and dones. It had nothing to do with brands. It had nothing to do with NILs. It had nothing to do with any of that. So I think the way... He sees the trend of college basketball going right now. He's like, man, I don't want any part of that. I didn't get into coaching because of that. Back in those days, coaches were teachers. Teaching was in, in the basketball court. The locker room was their classroom. Now it's just a matter of, hey, man, I got to get these guys in here by hook or crook and get them ready to get into the NBA because if I don't, then they're going to be moving on somewhere else to another school, another basketball program. And another coach that can put them in position to get them into the NBA quicker or get them, uh, put them in a position to en enhance their skills, to show off their skills so they can get into the NBA quicker. So I think that's what the deal is with uh, Mike Krzyzewski. And I think that's the legacy of Mike Krzyzewski and these guys, man. It's a dying breed, a, um antiquated way now when you're speaking about what college basketball coaches are all about. So 42 years the accomplishments by Mike Krzyzewski, uh, absolutely unbelievable. Godspeed, man. Enjoy your uh, senior years. Enjoy the last back nine of your life. And uh, congratulations for everything that you've accomplished and everything that you have yet to do. Thank you.
Last segment of the podcast, last segment of the program, Wendell's World of Sports. My name is Wendell Wallace O'Dogan. I'm glad that you could be with me. Remember, for those who are listening to this podcast, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, go ahead, type in W-E-N-D-E-L-L apostrophe S, Wendell's World and Sports. Go ahead, push that like, go ahead and push that follow, subscribe, do what you need to do. For those who are watching this, number one, you're damn right I look good. And number two, just go <laughs> I can't even keep a straight face saying that one. But number, if you could just go ahead, subscribe, like, would uh, very much appreciate it. So if you go ahead and do that, next time I'll do this uh, on video naked. Just kidding, just kidding. All right, back to what I was speaking about. Uh, as far as the um, NBA is concerned, the Los Angeles Lakers continue to fall, fall, fail, fall. Lost their sixth straight game. Losing on Sunday to Denver, 129-118. Nikola Jokic, brilliant. LeBron, not playing for the Lakers, set out with an ankle sprain. He's missed the last uh, two games. He's missed two games this week due to injury. Three of the last five games didn't play on Friday in a loss against – no, he didn't play on Thursday in a loss to the uh, Utah Jazz. Came back with Anthony Davis on Friday in their loss to the Pelicans at home. So with four games left to play in the regular season, the Los Angeles LeBrons will either be one or two games back of the San Antonio Spurs for the final spot in the playoff game. The Lakers currently are 31-47. and 47. They've lost six straight games. They're 2-8 and eight in their last 10. And their final four games, you take a look, for the Lakers, still surprisingly enough, even though they're going to be playing on Tuesday at Phoenix and then at Golden State at home against Oklahoma City and at Denver, depending upon, you know, what's going to be happening with Golden State, depending upon the last game of the regular season at Denver, um, the Lakers could go anywhere between 3-1 and one and 0-4. Oh and but the only game where you can say that they're favored against would be at home against Oklahoma City. In contrast, San Antonio, as I mentioned before, they're, they're remaining scheduled. They're playing at Denver and Minnesota. Then they're at home against Golden State before they go to Dallas again, depending upon that last game of the regular season and where the seedings are. We don't know for Dallas if Luka's going to play or – moving forward with that. So everything is still up in the air. But while there, <laughs> while there is a slim opportunity for the Lakers to uh, get in there, uh, the way these guys are playing, and look, you know what? They haven't quit in terms of they played hard against Denver. They played hard against the uh, Philadelphia 76ers about a week and a half ago. They, 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 they've shown glimpses of playing hard. But hey, man, since January 7th, after they beat Atlanta 134-118, which improved their record to 21-19, and I say improved in quotes, after that game, they've gone 10-28. and They've had four, four, four three-game losing streaks and one four-game losing streak. Now they're at six losses in a row. And as I mentioned before, yeah, in some spurts and in some instances and even some games, it looks like they're playing like they care. But for the most part, I've seen too many Laker games, especially down the stretch, where they're playing like, man, they don't care if they make the play-in play game or not. They don't care if they make the regular season game or not. I think with all the expectations that were piled upon the Lakers by themselves 
and some of the uh, chest pounding and some of the I know better than you quotes and comments that were made and some of the bravado and some of the uh, chest pounding and some of the look how big my dick is type of talk that's been coming from some of the key players of the Lakers and how measly and how wimply, wimp, wimply, and wimply even the word, I don't give a fuck, how much they look like wimps compared to all the, their uh, chest pounding and dick holding and grabbing that they've been doing. I think they're at the point now where it's like, what's the point, man? What's the point? I know, we know, you know, we all know that if we make it into the playoffs, that Phoenix is going to blast us. And yeah, we can sit there and we can talk about you have to bury me 12 feet under and run a car over me and run a train over me and do all this kind of stuff before I'm dead and gone. And, you know, I'm more resilient than Michael Myers and, and all that type of stuff. You can talk about all that nonsense you want to, but these guys know. These guys know that for the most part, look, the season's over and with the expectations that we had and the way that we played, I'm kind of getting tired of this team anyway. I think they're tired of Frank Vogel. I think they're tired of Russell Westbrook. I think they're tired of Dwight Howard. I think they're tired of just this whole situation. So the sooner that this season can end, the better. And hopefully, if you're speaking about some of the Lakers, the season could be over uh, April 10th. Uh, for some of those guys. That's the way they're playing. That's the way they've been looking on a more consistent basis than a team who's really, really interested in trying to make the playoffs and trying to, uh, I don't know, become a Cinderella. No, the Lakers could never be a Cinderella. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So my whole thing, my whole situation in talking about this is I want to bring this up to you. I want to ask this question. I'll ask you about LeBron James, because LeBron James, if, if the Lakers don't make the playoffs, or even if they do make the playoffs and they fail in the first round, this will be the fourth season for LeBron with the Lakers. Three of them, two of them have been mitigated disasters. One has been underwhelming, and the other one he won a championship. One in the bubble in 2020. I, I don't know what the future holds for LeBron in terms of what his accomplishments from a team standpoint is going to be if he continues to stay with the Lakers. I, I don't know what his legacy would be like if he went championship chasing again, if somehow, some way he finagled his way to go back to Cleveland or another young team with the possibilities to uh, win a championship in the fading years. Guy still averaging 30 points a game. The guy's still a force. The guy seems like for the next couple of years could still be that guy that could be very responsible in terms of or important in terms of a team winning a championship. So he's not going to be Mitch Richmond it with the Lakers. He's not going to be sitting at the end of the bench. He's not going to be John Sally it with the Lakers. He's not going to be AC Greening it with the Lakers. He's not going to be, he's not going to be that guy. He's going to be a major player. He's going to have a major responsibility thrust upon his shoulders if he decides to go championship chasing again. But what will, the, what will his legacy mean now with the Lakers? This is the first time in his career where you could take a look at the totality of his stay with the team. If it ends at the end of the season, or so far with his tenure with the most glorious NBA franchise tied maybe with the Boston Celtics, with the L.A. Lakers, the fabled Los Angeles Lakers. This has been an unmitigated disaster. If you think about what he was brought here to do, 
Yeah, he won a championship. Yeah, he won a championship with the Lakers. Big whoop de damn do when you're thinking about the legacy of LeBron James, when you're speaking about him trying to catch Kobe's five, when you're thinking about him trying to get near Michael Jordan's six. And you can make the point, and you can laugh, and you can fall, and you can, you know, disrespect the fact that it might take him 13 NBA final appearances to get the six or get the five. But that's still the fact that he's won four championships and been to the NBA finals more than half the time he's been playing in the NBA, something that's like Kareem Abdul-Jabbarish in terms of his just like excellence in terms of, you know, how many times he's made it to the finals compared to how many times he hasn't made it to the finals. I mean, you're speaking Kareem, you're speaking Bill Russell, you're speaking Magic Johnson, you're speaking in that rarefied air. So you can sit there and laugh and joke about how many championships he's lost or how many NBA finals that he's lost. I, I'm sorry, Jordan has been to six. He's won all six, but Jordan played 17 years. How many finals has LeBron been to in now 17, 18 years of his NBA career? Thank you very much. But getting back to my, my point, this will be the first time in LeBron James' career where he has not lived up to expectations in terms of what he was brought to do going from the Cleveland Cavaliers to the Los Angeles Lakers. So it's going to be interesting. Now, the first time when he was with Cleveland, he was 0-1 in the finals, but he was just starting his career, missed the playoffs his first two seasons. Then, before he decided to take his talents to South Beach, he made two Eastern Conference finals, losing to Boston and Orlando. And then made two Eastern Conference semifinals, where both times they lost to Boston. Then he went over with the Miami Heat and he went to the NBA Finals four straight times with the Heatles, went 2-2, uh, two and two, lost their first NBA Finals to the Dallas Mavericks, lost their last NBA Finals with the Miami Heat to the San Antonio Spurs. Then he went and returned to the Cavaliers from 2014 to, seven, to uh, 2017, made the NBA Finals every single season. He was there before losing to one of the great many dynasties in NBA history with the Golden State Warriors. And remember the one championship that LeBron had against the Warriors. That was a team that went 73-9 in the regular season and shook them up so much that they went ahead and got themselves Kevin Durant from Oklahoma City. So you take a look at, I mentioned before, him going to L.A., I mean, before that first season, it was a situation where, hey, look, man, you know, this is a season where the Lakers are rebuilding. They're not any good. They've been coming off five or six straight years of losing 55, 60, 62, 63 games. It's going to take some time to get things done. All right, we'll kind of give you a mulligan on that one. But because of that lost season in which he missed a lot of it because of a uh, pulled groin muscle, which he suffered, I believe, was it against the Warriors on Christmas Day or something like that? I, I forgot what it was, but it was a long-term injury that kept him out of uh, playing and really being able to make a difference in totality for the Lakers that season. But before he went to L.A., he made the playoffs 13 straight seasons and finished the season with a record over 514 straight times. So that's what you got with LeBron James moving into the Los Angeles Lakers in terms of, hey, man, you know the Lakers, a team that acquired Wilt Chamberlain near the end of his uh, career, a team that acquired Kareem Abdul-Jabbar from the Milwaukee Bucks when he was entering the prime of his career, the team that went ahead and through free agency brought in Shaquille O'Neal, who was starting to elevate his game to becoming one of the all-time most dominant big men in the game. You're speaking about a team that was the legacy of Jerry Buss and now the ownership of Jim and Jeannie Buzz, who are going to bring bringing in superstars and 
and all of these type of things. And we're speaking about Kobe, and we're speaking about the legends, and we're speaking about Elgin, and we're speaking about Jerry West, and we're speaking about all of these great players. LeBron was supposed to be moving in there and doing the same doggone thing. Now he has failed in that regard if you really take a look at it. What does that mean when you're speaking about Jordan? What does that mean when you're speaking about Kobe? What does that mean when you're speaking about the greatest basketball players of all time? Now, sometimes I think Jordan unfairly gets a pass because, yeah, he won the sixth championship with Boston, but we all like to, uh, we all tend to put in our memories as truth of him pushing off on Brian Russell in game six in Salt Lake City in that NBA final and hitting that left side jumper to uh, win that championship. We're forgetting the years with the Washington Wizards. We want to forget. We don't want to remember. We remember the time, like our name was Magic, like our name was uh, Michael Jackson. But that was the deal. That was real. He doesn't get dinged for those years in Washington, coming back for a second time out of retirement. What is it going to mean for LeBron moving forward, despite the individual accolades? If he does win the NBA scoring title, the Jordan sheep, the Jordan lovers, the folks who believe Jordan is God, who don't want to give up their their, their, their praise and their glory to Jordan by admitting that anybody can be as close to Jordan as a basketball player is concerned? What's going to be your excuse if LeBron, who's averaging 30 points a game as a 37-year-old in the 17th season in the NBA, they're going to say, well, who, big deal. The Lakers acquired Russell Westbrook and were favorites to win the NBA championship, and they couldn't even get out of the, uh, they couldn't even get into the play-in game. So all of this stuff is going to be interesting to see moving forward. The, the, the final chapter, the final episode of LeBron James has yet to be written. But in L.A., in terms of uh, winning a championship, he's going to have to win after this season. If the Lakers miss the playoffs with LeBron, his legacy is going to be damaged. Individually, hey, great, fantastic. He won a championship there. Fantastic, wonderful, great. But the totality of his stay so far With the Lakers, if you take a look from a team standpoint and an expectation standpoint in terms of what they were supposed to be, especially after they got uh, Anthony Davis, they mortgaged their future to get Anthony Davis. And then with LeBron being one of the pillars and being one of the foundational pieces to say, Rob Palenka, go ahead and no, we don't want Buddy Hield. You go ahead and you get us Russell Westbrook. And then when they got Russell Westbrook and everybody was talking about what a bad fit it was, and then Westbrook and LeBron were taking to Twitter talking about, please, please go ahead and doubt us, you know, basically saying, I know more than you, you're peasants, I'm the king, I can get this, I've got this, you don't know, I know, I can go ahead and get this done, ha, 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 I'm going to win again, I'm going to prove everybody wrong again, and now we see where the Lakers are, now we see what a train wreck of a season Westbrook has been, with the Lakers in terms of them reaching the expectations? I don't know, man. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult to overcome. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Very quickly, let me go ahead and hit the situation with the MVP because many people are sitting there talking about, man, it's about um, Joel Embiid. It's about Nikola Jokic. It's about Giannis Adenikupo. And basically, it's a two-man race between Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid. Well, Giannis put on a performance this past week against the Philadelphia 76ers on Tuesday. And then the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant on the road on Thursday. That said, hold up, wait a minute. Before y'all start uh, talking about who's the MVP, Nikola or Joel, 
Let me uh, slide my name in there very quickly. Um, had 40 points, had 40 points, 14 rebounds, six assists, game-winning block shot on Embiid in Milwaukee's victory over Philadelphia, then scored 44 points, 14 rebounds, six assists, hit the game-tying three, hit some big shots and foul shots in overtime to uh, beat the Brooklyn Nets. Where was Kyrie Irving down the stretch? So, hey, look, man, you know, this is going to be a pretty tight race. I think when you take a look, when you take a look at the top five or six, I think you got to put in Luka, you got to put in Jason Tatum, you got to put in Devin Booker, you got to put in Jokic, you got to put in Embiid, and you got to put in Adenikupo. Now, the first three that I've just mentioned, Booker, Luka, and Tatum, outside looking in when you're speaking about MVP. With about four or five games left to go, there's still going to be a situation. There's still a path for Giannis and Joel and Jokic to go ahead and solidify their uh, top spot for the MVP. Talk about it a little bit later on moving forward. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be a pretty interesting, interesting race down the stretch. So, all right, man, that's about it. I am done. I am out of here. Wendell's World of Sports. Before I leave, before I tell folks to hit my music, before I go ahead and once again – emphasize to go ahead, like, subscribe this YouTube episode, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, like, subscribe, download, rate, review, enjoy. Anywhere where you listen to your favorite podcast, the most interesting, unique, entertaining sports talk podcast that you can listen to. I just got to say, as I get out of here, would you please, please, please do what you need to do to make this world a better place through listening, learning, shutting up, by talking and learning from folks who are of a different race, a different gender, different financial background, different religion, if they even have a religion that they worship, a different type of person that they love, different side of the globe, different side of the financial tracks. If you could just go ahead and try, try to have a meaningful conversation, too late for our generation, too late for my generation, we're too ignorant, we're too racist, we're too stupid, we're too privileged, we're too uh, just narrow-minded to have the society. I'm part of that problem, but we're just too ignorant and racist and close-minded to have the utopian society that we deserve to have where people are truly based on what type of people they are, what's in their heart, what type of character that they have, how much love that they have for each other regardless of anything else in terms of uh, race, religion, and such. We're too late to have a utopian society where truly we are based as a person, a good person, and that type of thing. So if we could just go ahead and if we could give these lessons of love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding, and respect to all of those who deserve it through love and peace in their hearts and goodwill in their hearts and helping out others and doing those type of things, if we could kind of pass those lessons to our children and then they could do it to their children and their children and their children that's the way we're going to move this world forward. That's the only way we're going to move this society forward. And maybe, just maybe if we do that, some of us might have an opportunity to enter the pearly gates when we get there. Because, man, if I'm lucky enough to, 
I want to say what's up to my grandparents. I want to be reunited with my parents at that time. And I want to go listen to a little Otis Redding. I want to listen to a little James Brown. I want to see them in concert. I can't wait to go ahead and watch the Heavenly Basketball League where you've got Kobe up there and you've got Will Chamberlain up there. You've got Maurice Stokes up there. You've got Elgin Baylor up there. You've got Red Auerbach coaching. You've got John Thompson coaching. You've got John Chaney coaching. You've got Dean Smith coaching. You're talking about the great boxing matches. I cannot wait to see the fight between Joe Lewis and Rocky Marciano. I can't wait to see the fight between Ezra Charles and Bob Foster. I can't wait to see the fight between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. I can't wait to see the fight between Muhammad Ali and Jack Johnson. I hope Jack Johnson's in heaven. But, uh, yeah, man, there's a lot of stuff through eternity that I want to be able to sit back and watch and enjoy. So uh, maybe see the movie with Marilyn Monroe and and um, Dorothy Dandridge and, uh, you know, Hubert, uh, Hubert Humphrey, Jesus, and uh, Sidney Poitier and Spencer Tracy and Aubrey Hepburn and Lana Turner. So there's a lot of great things looking forward to me up in heaven if I could just go ahead and um, strengthen my resume to get past those pearly gates. So let's see what we can do selfishly, unselfishly to make this world a better place. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Music. Thank you.